If you have your Bible, turn me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Today, my goal is to look with you all at the finished, what I will call the finished work of sin and the finished work of Christ. We'll see in this that the, that the work of sin is driven by lust, whereof Christ was driven by love. Sin and its finished work is 100% attributable to man, none to God, where the finished work of Christ is 100% attributable to God and none to man. And where sin brings forth death, I hope we can see where Christ brought forth life for his people. You know, as I was thinking this week through some of these verses and, and what I might speak to you about on this Easter Sunday, I, I laughed with starting with um, starting your Easter sermon with sin. Is probably, if I probably picked, a, picked up a book on how to, how to prepare an Easter sermon for your congregation, that probably wouldn't be the first subject <laughs> that it suggested for a sermon. You know, because sometimes we don't like to talk about sin because we are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. And I don't like to think about my sin. Um, I don't like to think that I miss the mark from time to time. But it's something we often need to be reminded of. If you've been at this church very long, you know that my favorite television show of all time is the Andy Griffith Show. Without a doubt, it's the best show that's ever been on television. And uh, we watched it this week. I think it's in the third season. There's, a, there's an episode called The Sermon for Today. And it's, it's Dr. Harrison Everett Breen from New York City takes part. He leaves from his vacation to preach in Mayberry. And they are in a tizzy getting ready for the big doctor preacher from New York City who's going to preach at their, their church. And he preaches on slowing down and resting and why are we in, it's called, why are, why are we in such a hurry, I believe is the, the, the name of his sermon. And pretty good information that he shares. They're pretty good ideas. But um, as he's preaching the sermon, Deputy Barney Fife just cannot stay awake. <laughs> he keeps falling. I've seen some of y'all do that. <laughs> and um, he just can't keep his eyes open. He just nods off to the entire sermon. And as they're leaving... They're greeting the, the Dr. Breen who had preached the sermon and, and Aunt B comes to him first and she says, oh, Dr. Breen, that sermon was just what we needed. And then Andy shakes his hand and says, yes, you hit the nail on the head. And Barney, who slept through the whole thing and has no idea what the sermon is about, says, yes, sir. It's one subject you can't talk enough about, sin. <laughs> but you know, as we think about that, it is good that we be reminded of our sin from time to time, right? That we are fallen creatures, that we are people who miss the mark. And um, it's something that we all have to deal with. And if you can, if you can understand the, the nature of sin in your life and the, and the commission of sin in your life, doesn't it make the power of the cross all that much more beautiful? <laughs> when you think about who you really are and what Christ did, for you, you know, I think sin is the main cause. I don't think it is the main cause of all the trouble we see around us in the world today. Paul said that the whole creation in, in Romans chapter 8, it groans and travails in pain. It's waiting for its redemption from this sinful world in which we live. 
when you when you hear news of cancers or uh, it may be any any diseases or you see sufferings and you see wars and you can know that that is a result of sin that was not part of God's original creation was it that was not part of the the garden this beautiful paradise that God had created you know sin when, when we feel the weight of our shame and our sin and our guilt that that was a product of sin Adam felt shame he felt shame they felt their nakedness when they transgress God's law, when, when, when Cain murders Abel, that was a result of sin, wasn't it? That was, that was sin that caused that. When it was, it was, it was, the world had become so sinful that it, it caused God to flood the earth and almost start over with just eight souls. It was, it was sin that led to the confusion at the Tower of Babel. It was sin that led to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sin messes up everything. <laughs> We, we look around us in our nation today and we say, why do we have things so backwards? The root cause of that is a small word, and it's sin. It's the main cause for the, the mess that we see around us even today. And, and it's very sneaky. Sin is very sneaky because sinful things can look so fun, can't they? They can look so enticing. And the Bible even says that you can enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. It's speaking of Moses in Hebrews chapter 11. It says that he, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy sin for a season, the pleasures of sin for a season. It'll, it'll look so enticing, it'll draw you to it, as we'll see in a moment. But you can, I can the, the end result of sin is not sometimes, it is always destruction and death, and misery, and sorrow. And so, as we look to James chapter 1, I want to get again in verse 13 and read to verse 15. It says, Let no man say when he is tempted that I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. So we look at the finished work of sin. We see here that it is driven by lust. He says enticed of his own lust. You know, you know lust is all about pleasing yourself, doing what you want without regard for how it will impact those around you, your loved ones, your neighbor, uh, your fellow man, it is just, it's, it's all about what I want. And we see that it's, it's attributable to man. He says, listen to verse 13, he says, let no man say. James is saying, don't let anybody, that, that word can mean to speak or to teach this. When, 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 when someone is tempted, do not let them say. And that word tempted there is really, it means to be enticed to sin. When you are enticed to, to transgress God's laws, God's commandments, God's ways. He says, don't let any man say when he is tempted that I am tempted of God. And, and why would we not say that, James? He says, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He says, God, God is not, he's not liable to be tempted with sin. He's not temptable. As we, as we think about Jesus, he was impeccable. There was no way that he could sin. And, and why is that? And James points back to the nature of God. He says, for God cannot be tempted with evil. 
Meaning that God's nature is different than our nature. Where our nature is depraved and, in, and intrinsically wicked and, and we inherit this nature that is against God. God is holy and righteous and undefiled. He, he is so far, to, to, to say that God is holy is, is to say how, how different God is from us in his righteousness, right? And in, in, in who he is. And so James says God can't even be tempted with evil because his nature is such that evil does not uh, tempt him. It does not entice God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And then listen to this. He says, neither tempts he any man. So James has clearly said that, that God is not tempting you or, in, or enticing you to miss the mark or you to transgress his laws. And you may say, wait a second, Josh, this, this, this chapter starts in verse 2. James says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. But and here it says that God is not the one that is tempting any man. So how, how do we reconcile that? Well, we're talking about, I believe, two different types of temptations. Here, here James is talking about a temptation to do evil. When he begins this, he's talking about trials of your faith. See, God is not going to try you um, by trying to entice you to do something that is against his will. But there will be, he will allow, or he may bring tests upon your faith in this life. And, 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 and it really doesn't have to be that God is bringing those. If you, and it could be. You know, a lot of times when we, when we are walking outside of the will of God as children of God, God is a good father, isn't he? And he will discipline us. If, if you don't discipline your children when they go wrong, they'll never know how to do right, and they'll never get back on the path, right? So it could be that you have a trial of your faith that God is bringing upon you or allowing to come your way because he's trying to get you back unto the ways uh, of the Lord and the ways of the king. And he's trying to get you back on the right path. That happens. But there, there's also trials. If you are living a Christian life, if you are living a life of, of not, see, God may chastise you because of your disobedience, but the truth, of the, the truth of the Bible is, the truth of the Christian life is, that if you, are, if you are living a life of gospel obedience, there are going to be trials of your faith in this life. You're, you're, the, the, see, the world around you hates the gospel and hates God. <laughs> the people outside the kingdom, the people of this world, uh, the, the systems of this world, the prince of the power of the air, they hate nothing more than people who are devoted to God and following the gospel. And so you will have many trials that, that listen to what James says in verse 3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. There are going to be many trials that come into the lives of the disciples of Jesus Christ who are trying to live in gospel obedience that try their faith. It's not a temptation to get them uh, really to sin or transgress the law, but we, the, the, the world is going to try to get you to deny your faith in the king, Right? The, the, the world is going to try to get you uh, to follow its ways instead of God's ways. And so that's why Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. There, there's, there's going to come trials in their lives that test their faith. Um, you know, you could go through the book of Acts and you will see almost chapter after chapter trials of the faith of God's people. 
And, it, and it, I believe it's in Acts chapter 5 where it says they left after being uh, beaten, arrested, and they were rejoicing that they were even counted worthy to suffer for his name. <laughs> That's the kind of people that turn the world upside down, right? The kind of people that, that, that go forth in gospel obedience. And to think that living a life of gospel obedience is going to be easy is contrary to the word of God. It's going to, be, it's going to take courage. It's going to take commitment. Uh, it's going to take perseverance on your part, and God will help you do that, right? But you've got to be committed. And, and, and the, you think about like Revelation 2 and 3 where, where Jesus is writing to those churches, the blessing is in the one that overcomes, right? Not in the one that falls. And so that's what James begins his epistle talking about, these trials of your faith. But now he's talking about when we of ourselves are tempted to disobey and to sin and to to go beyond the laws of God and God God can't be blamed for man's sin mankind loves to blame God for their own sin even in the garden it's not long before God appears to Adam after they've transgressed and he says the woman you gave me right she's the one that gave me that almost placing the, the the blame on God in a certain way isn't it the woman you gave me but we can't, you, you, can, you can never transgress God's law and blame that on God. It's 100% accountable to man. And so listen to what James says. He says, but every man is tempted when? When he is drawn away of his own. See, that indicates it's his possession. It's his ownership of his own lust. To be drawn away is to be lured almost like a, a fish to a worm, right? You throw the worm in the, in the pond and the fish comes out of its hole and it's trying to find food. Uh, that's, the, that's the word picture that is given uh, when James says that we are drawn away of our own lusts, of our own cravings, our longings, our desires for something that is forbidden by God. He says every man is tempted, not by God, but when that man is drawn away of his own lusts and is enticed. He's... That, <laughs> That, that word means to, to, he's caught by the bait. He's enticed. And, and it doesn't, notice this. This is not even, this is not even a, a, a enticement or a lure of Satan. It's the lust of your own flesh. <laughs> Do you see that? It's, it's, it's something that we all have to deal with, the, the carnal nature in which we possess. Now, when God has given us his spirit, uh, we, we have this... Uh, we, we have the spirit of God in us, which wars against the flesh, but until the day we die... We have to war with their fleshly, natural nature <laughs> that is contrary to God. And he says it is your own lust that entices you and that traps you. And then in verse 15 it says then, looking at the, the finished work of sin, then when lust hath conceived, when it is seized upon that object that is forbidden, it brings forth or produces sin. There's that, that small word. Once again, it brings forth sin. It violates God's law. It goes beyond what God has said we should do. And sin, when it is finished, when sin has its complete work, when the transaction of sin is complete, it says sin brings forth death 
Death is ultimately a separation. When God said to Adam that in the day you eat thereof you shall surely die, there was going to be a separation from the fellowship that, that Adam had with God, from that, uh, that, that we have never experienced that type of fellowship and closeness that they had when they walked together and talked together. And you see when he, when he transgressed God's law that that was broken. But death indicates that there would be destruction and there would be misery and depression and, and, and despair. And so when you see all of those things in your life or in your community or maybe in your family or in our church, when we see those things, it's not, it's not a result of something God has done. It's a result of what sin has accomplished in this world. Do you see that this morning? So you, it doesn't take much to look around and see the finished work of sin, does it? <laughs> it's everywhere. As you... You can, you can see it in your own bodies, in your own families, in your own lives. The, 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 the destruction and death that sin causes is everywhere. But I want to contrast that this morning with what we've been singing about almost every song, the finished work of Christ. And when I speak of the finished work of Christ, I'm talking about the Son of God's atoning work at the cross of Calvary. That is the finished work of God. And, and in, in, in opposition to, to the finished work of sin, when sin was motivated by lust, I think we'll see that, that, that the finished work of Christ, or the, or the work of God in salvation, was motivated by love, the opposite of lust, right? Where lust is, is so worried about me and what, what is good for me, we'll see that, that love, in contrast to that, is about others, and about what can I do for others and the welfare of others. Uh, living for the good of others. Love is self-sacrifice, isn't it? That's the, when, when God demonstrates his love for us on the cross, he was sacrificing himself. You cannot love your spouse or your children or your church without sacrificing. If, if, if you think you're loving somebody and you don't feel some type of sacrifice in your life, that's not real love. So, so, so this was motivated by love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5 says, speaking of charity, it says, charity seeks not her own. It is, it is seeking the good of others. And that is certainly what Jesus did for us on the cross. The, the, you know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the finished work of Christ. He gave him as a propitiation for our sins on the cross. It was motivated by love. Calvary, the thing we've been singing about all morning. I hope the thing we've been focused on this week, this Easter week, the, the sacrifice of Christ. You know, it was, it was our sin. You say, where does sin come into that? It was our sin that demanded, <laughs> that demanded something, somebody pay for what we have done. So what did we add to the cross? Our sin. <laughs> but it was God's love that planned Calvary, wasn't it? It was God's love for his people. That, that put a, a plan into motion before the world ever began to save them. And so when we talk about the finished work of Christ or the atoning work of God, it is in, in contrast to sin, which is, which is 100% attributable to God, the finished work of Christ, which is so far different from what we do in our works, the finished work and the saving work of Christ is 100% attributable to God. <laughs> and we do nothing for it. And I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5 with me. 
going to begin in verse 6. Paul writes in Romans 5 and verse 6, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commends his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. We're talking about the atonement, the finished work of Christ. And Paul says, "For listen, listen to when he, how he starts in verse 6, for when we were yet without strength. When we say that, that it is 100% attributable to God, that the glory and the praise and the honor for salvation belongs to God, you say, why, why does that have to be? Because this took place when you were yet without strength. He's saying you lack the power, you lack the ability, you are, you are unable by your nature. <laughs> Just as James was saying, God is unable by his nature, who he is, to be tempted with sin. You are unable by your nature, who you are, to have the strength to come and die for yourself. Or to save yourself. Or to redeem yourself. So Paul says, when we were yet without strength in due time. I love that word. That means at the right time. You know, a lot of times I want God to act on my time. Do y'all struggle with that? But... But, but the, the, the life of faith is waiting for God to act in due time, in his time. And that's what he's saying. At the, at the right time, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. <laughs> you say, who did Christ die for? Is, is it those that have it all together? Did Christ die for the ones uh, that, would, that would one day change their lives and reform their behavior and follow him? And, and so that's the ones he died for? No, he died for the ungodly. He died for the wicked. He died for those that have no fear. That, that word ungodly means they have no reverence for God whatsoever because they were without strength. Their nature was, was against God. They were at enmity with God. They hated God so much so that some of them would say, crucify him and give us the robber. <laughs> but yet he, he, knowing their nature and knowing their inability and knowing their hatred and enmity towards him, he still died for them. Isn't that amazing? When we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now listen to what Paul says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. And, and he's, that word scarcely means not not easily. I believe what Paul's saying is it, it would be very difficult for me to find somebody that would even die for a righteous man. And you think about that yourself. I believe there's a few here that I would give my life for, but the majority of you, you're on your own if it comes to that, okay? <laughs> I love you. <laughs> I'll devote my life to serving uh, the church, uh, but, but there's a few here that I believe I would, if, if, if I'm being honest with you, there's a few here that I believe I would give my life for but Paul's saying it, it's a, it would not be an easy thing to find somebody that would give their life even for a righteous man. Then he goes on to say, yet peradventure perhaps for a good man. Now think about this. This would be somebody that gives all they have to the poor. Somebody that you think you can't live your life without. He says perhaps for a man like that would some even dare 
to die. They would have to be so bold or so courageous that maybe you could find some that would die for them. But he says in verse 8, but God, but God commended or showed his, God, that word, that word can mean proved. God proved his, you want to, some people struggle with, did God love me? You, how could you look at the cross and ask the question, does God love me? He says, God has proven his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, he, he, he almost repeats what he said in verse 6, that, that while we were yet wicked and devoted to sin, before we were born again, before we were regenerated, many of us before we were ever born into this world. He says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it's so easy to skip over th- those thoughts that Christ died for the ungodly, that Christ died for us. When you, when you look into what does that mean, it, when, when he says died, he doesn't say Christ died an easy death after a long life for us. You know, that Christ died of old age for us. It means that Christ died a violent death for us. The word, the word excruciating, you know that word was, was literally created to explain the cross, the crucifixion. What takes place upon a cross? You think about what what Christ went through for who had done nothing wrong, but because you had done wrong, because you had inherited a nature that is wrong, because you were alienated from him because of the wrong. He says that Christ, Christ died a violent, excruciating crucifixion for us. I wrote down from John Gill's commentary on this verse, he says, and that before conversion. And he's probably speaking of regeneration in that verse. He says, whether it be regeneration or conversion, it was before that, it's particularly mentioned here to illustrate the love of God to them. Notwithstanding this, their character and condition, and to show that, he, that the love of God to them was very early. It anteceded their conversion. It, it, he's saying it went before anything they have done. It was before the death of Christ for them. Yea, it was from everlasting. And also to express the freeness of it and to make it appear that it did not arise from any loveliness in them or from any love in them to him, nor from any works of righteousness done by them, but from his own sovereign will and pleasure in verse 7 when when he says for scare verse 8 excuse me when he says but god commendeth or shows his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners christ died for us paul is paul is wanting you to know that 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 the love that was demonstrated towards you was 100 percent based on the sovereign grace and mercy of god it was in nothing that you would do. He demonstrated his love for you while you were still sinners, while you were still reprobate, while you were still unregenerated. But God commends his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9 says, much more than being now justified. Uh, he says, at, at this very time, 
You know, I hope, I hope there's no one here today that loves the Lord that you're, you're still trying. You're still trying to gain your justification. <laughs> we talked about that last week, didn't we? About, about being experiencing justification or experiencing righteousness. He tells the church at Rome, he says, much more than being now justified, to be rendered righteous or to be shown to be just. He's saying to them and to us, that, that, that at this time, and this is post the crucifixion, post resurrection, uh, post the passion of Jesus on the cross, he says, you are at this time, you are now justified. <laughs> you know, in the mind of God, you are now justified. In front of the courtroom, the judge of the world, you stand justified. <laughs> and, and the question is, how could that be? And Paul says, much more than being now justified by His blood. It was by His blood. In Strong's Concordance, it says specifically the atoning blood of Jesus. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Paul says we shall be delivered from not, not only from this world, we shall be delivered from the wrath, from the violent anger that God is bringing against those who were not covered by the blood. God, the, 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 the punishment that is coming to those who are not covered by the blood of Jesus, you are going to be delivered, delivered from that. And he, he reiterates why that is through Him. Do you see that? It is through Christ. There's this... The song in the Songs of Zion, in Christ alone my hope is found. What is your hope for being delivered uh, from the destruction that is coming upon this world? My hope is not in anything that I have done. The only thing I can confess before the throne of God is that I believe through Him I will be saved from the wrath to come. That it is through Him. And so, Christ, so, so Paul, speaking of Christ, says it was His blood and it is through Him that we will be saved from wrath. Verse 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Listen to that. He's saying, when did, you, when did your reconciliation take place? To reconcile enemies. You know, that's what we were at enmity with God. We were enemies to God. God. God was here and our sin had driven us over here. We were opposed to him. It wasn't that God was just opposed to us. He couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't save us while we were still in that sinful state. But we had driven ourselves from God, right? We had driven by, by our sin, we had driven ourselves away, and we were at enmity to him. And so so people that are at enmity with each other, they need to be brought back together, right? People that were once friends. They need to be brought back into a, into a state of friendship. And, and Paul says, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. We were brought back into that state of reconciliation, that relationship with God. No longer in a state of enmity with him when we were enemies. Do you think about that? It's not some, some it wasn't a prayer that they prayed or an act that they, they performed. He says, when you were enemies, you were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That is the finished work of Christ, right? The death of his son. He says, being much more reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
I, I wish I wish I could. My prayer is, and, and, and my hope is, and I believe that God can do this, and I really believe God will do this. I want to see the message of the finished work of Christ go forth into the world, don't you? Let's go to, to John chapter 19 for just a moment. We looked at this Tuesday night at our Bible study here at the church. When Christ was on the cross, we're talking about the death of the Son of God. It says, after this, verse 28, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished. What was, what was, the, what was the purpose of Christ? It was, it, was, it was to come into the world to save his people, right? And so the crucifixion has taken place. The wrath of God that you will be saved from has been poured out upon his son. The world has gone dark. And it says after this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished. There was, when, it, when it comes to the work of saving his people, of reconciling them to God, of justifying them before the Father, the work was accomplished. Do you see that? And Jesus knew that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He saith, I thirst. Now there was, now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it in a hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. <laughs> that means to complete, it has been executed. When it comes to the debt that you owe to God, your sin, he's saying that price has been paid in full. There's nothing left to pay. That is, that is the message of the finished work of Christ. When we talk about the atoning work of God, we, we don't mean an atonement that leaves something else to be done to save God's people. We, we want to know what Christ knew, that it was accomplished, and that we can cry out with our Lord, it is finished. But look at the result. It says, after he cried out that it is finished, it says he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The atonement of Christ, it says, it ended in death. Isn't that what, isn't that what James said about sin? That it brings forth death? And here's the finished work of Christ taking on your sin and bringing forth his own death. And Paul, going back to Romans 5.10, says you were reconciled at that moment to God. Notice it wasn't us reconciling ourselves to God or God being reconciled to us, but we were being reconciled to God by the death of his son. And, and the message of the church and the message of the gospel and the message of the finished work is this. When he bowed his head and gave up the ghost, when he died upon that cross, you know, the soldiers would come to break 
the bones of those on the cross. In the first one, they break his legs. In the other, that was crucified with him. But it says in verse 33, but when they came to Jesus, they saw he was dead already. And, and I don't know how to explain that in words. That, that God, who took on flesh, was dead. But I can tell you that sin demands death. We've seen that from the book of James. It always brings forth death. But here is a man that never sinned who is dead. And that's why he would say, we have been reconciled by the death of his son. When, when, they, when he bowed his head and gave up the ghost, the message of the gospel is, you were at that time reconciled to God. You were at that time saved from wrath. You were at that time redeemed by his blood. A people out of every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. A people that no man can number. A, a, a portion of the people of humanity that is, that, is, that is so large it is unfathomable. At that very moment, without them doing anything to merit it, they were saved and reconciled to God. But the, <laughs> the story doesn't end there, does it? I want to I I go with you to Mark chapter 16. And it says, after the crucifixion, after Joseph of Arimathea, after Nicodemus had taken the body of Jesus and laid it in a sepulcher in a, in a, in a borrowed tomb in the garden close to Calvary, it says, and when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him, the dead body of Jesus. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away. For it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in long white garment, and they were affrightened. And he saith unto them, Be not affrightened. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. And he says, He is risen. He is not here. Behold, the place where they laid him. He says, but go on your way and tell his disciples that he goeth before you into Galilee, and there shall ye see him as he said unto you. And so the one that had died upon the cross for your sins, they go to anoint their king. They go to anoint the one that they had followed the one whose disciples they were, and he's no longer there. And the messenger says, he's risen. He's not here. Behold, look at the place where he was. <laughs> and do, and do, you, do you know what the resurrection of Jesus means? Is that when he knew that all things were accomplished, and when he cried out, it is finished, and when he gave up the ghost, the work that he came to accomplish was actually accomplished. 
If, if they would have come to the tomb and the stone would still be there and Jesus was still lying dead, that would have shown us that He didn't accomplish what He came to accomplish. That He left something to be done that He didn't do. But He was risen again, Paul says, for our justification because He had, he had, uh, he, because he had redeemed us. Because He had accomplished what He came to do. Because He had saved us. And there is, a, there is a difference in the message that Jesus has risen because you can be saved and the message that says Jesus has risen because you are saved. There's a big difference in that message. And so Paul says when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. He says much more being reconciled. He wants them to know you are reconciled. You are redeemed. He says, we shall be saved. We shall be delivered by His life. And He points them to the resurrected Christ. By his, not, not the life that He did live, but the life in which He is now living. You have been saved from your sins. You have been saved from death and eternal death by the crucifixion and the atoning blood of Jesus. But I don't know about you, but I still struggle with sin, do y'all? I still struggle with myself, with my flesh, with the world around me. I see things that grieve me. I do things that grieve me. And I think, how can I be saved from that? Paul says, you've already been reconciled, but you shall be saved by his life. He's pointing them to one who was alive, a man who was alive at the right hand of God. A man who Paul describes in Hebrews chapter 8 as our priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. John said we have, he said if we sin, John, uh, 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 and 2, he says, he says if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is that? It's, it's the Christ that rose from the dead. And you say, how am I going? I understand that I've been saved from my sins. I understand that one day I'm going to heaven. But I'm struggling to live today. Well, go to what Paul was pointing the Romans to. We shall be saved by His life. You say, my marriage is struggling. My relationships are struggling. My devotion to God is struggling. I'm just struggling. Go to the one who lives. <laughs> What was it that changed the disciples who were scared and they're locked in their homes and they're, they're fearing what man is going to do to them and then 11 of them would be crucified for Him? What would change, what would change men that were fishermen by trade and tax collectors by trade and fearful by trade? What would give them the courage to go out and live in such a way that they would die for a cause? Don't you want to be so committed to something that you would die for it? We talked about dying for others earlier. I believe I would die for my wife. I would die for my children because I'm committed to them. But we could be so committed to the church that we would die for it. But how can we, how can we have that kind of commitment? By looking to the one who lives. How did they have that kind of commitment? They were looking to the one who lives. And you say, I don't know what's happening around us. I don't know what tomorrow holds I love that Bill Gaither song, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Because He Lives. I'll, I'll read Romans 5 and verse 11 as we close. Because often, 
when death enters in among us, it, it brings so much sadness, doesn't it? When our loved ones die, when our friends pass from this earth. Listen to Romans 5.11. It says, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You may say today, I, I can't find much joy in my life. Well, are you looking to Jesus? Are you looking? To, I bet John, when he's exiled to an island after possibly being burnt almost to death, and now he's been exiled to an island by himself. His friends are gone. There's no one there. He, he had all the reason in the world to be down, didn't he? But we read in Revelation 1 that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He was looking for Jesus. And Jesus appeared unto him, didn't he? I believe if we're looking to Jesus, we can say with Paul, not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Christ made the atonement. We have received the atonement. Can't you see the difference between our sin and its finished work and our Savior and his finished work? May we ever be looking to that. That is our hope, isn't it? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness.